0: We are all bound together by our common humanity, and we have so much more in common than our differences. And we should be celebrating our differences and realizing how much we actually have in common.
1: What considerations need to be made if patients with congenital heart defects are aligned with the LGBTQ plus community? Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna. I am Anna Jaworski and your host. I'm also a heart mom to an adult who was born with a single ventricle heart and is 28 years old. That's the reason I'm the host of your program. Today's episode is called LGBTQ plus and the CHD community. And our guest is Dr. Jake Kleinmahan. Dr. Jake Kleinmahan attended medical school and completed his residency in pediatrics at Tulane University School of Medicine. He continued his training at Children's Colorado, completing fellowships in pediatric cardiology and pediatric heart transplant and advanced heart failure. In 2018, he joined the faculty at Ochsner Hospital for Children in New Orleans, where he serves as the medical director of pediatric heart transplant, heart failure, and ventricular assist device programs. He has been active in multiple research efforts and Societies to Advance Heart, Lung, and Transplant Health Outcomes, and works to improve healthcare disparities among different CHD racial groups. He was awarded Doctor of the Year by the Colorado Pediatric Congenital Heart Association in 2018. His interests include taking care of children with cardiomyopathies, myocarditis, connective tissue disorders, heart transplant, pulmonary hypertension, and congenital heart disease. He lives in New Orleans with his husband, Tom, and two children, Isabel, six years of age, and Connor, who's three. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Jake.
0: Thank you so much for having me. really happy to be here.
1: Jake, it appears you have accomplished so much in your life. I had to be so selective with what I wanted to include in your bio because there was so much more there. Tell me why you decided to work with children with broken hearts
0: a wonderful question. Ever since I was about four years old, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I had a wonderful pediatrician and I admired his way that he took care of patients, his knowledge, and how comforting he was in times of sickness. So I knew I wanted to go to medical school and pediatrics. And throughout medical school, I had Realized that I found a lot more meaning in taking care of patients who were sick rather than patients who had colds or needed general well checkups. So I chose cardiology because the heart made sense to me. I'm a simple person, and the heart is a pump with some different rooms in it, it has some wiring. And it has some pipes. And that's really all it is. So I have the wonderful ability to work with these patients and their families and really help walk them through their journey as they go through different surgeries or different procedures.
1: Okay. First of all, I love that you're so humble. But I'm giggling to myself here that you said you're a simple person. You are probably (laughs) one of the least simple people I know. And yet... You take something as complicated as a heart and broke it down into pumps and pipes and an electrical system. Most people think that the heart is very complicated. I love it that you've been able to break it down into terms that a common person can understand. And that makes you perfect for being a pediatric cardiologist because you're able to see something complicated through the eyes of a child and make it simple. Wow. I'm just so impressed with that, Jake.
0: Oh, thank you. By far the best part of my job is getting to know families and educating them. So it's really important for me to be able to break it down so that they leave my office or if they're in the hospital, they leave me visiting them, really understanding the ins and outs of their disease.
1: That is so important. And it's funny because when my child had surgery for the very first time, the cardiothoracic surgeon said to me, I'm really a glorified plumber. (laughs) And I was shocked to hear this very educated and skilled man say he was a glorified plumber. And he said, yeah, the heart, it's just a bunch of pipes and your kid's got some kinks in his pipes and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to fix that he did the same kind of thing that you're talking about doing. He broke it down into terms that I could understand. And although I was terrified that I might lose my child, because of the descriptions he used with what he was going to do, I had an idea of how he was going to go in there and fix it. He simplified it just right for me (laughs) when I was very stressed. And I think that's something that you intuitively seem to know. And that is, Parents are very stressed when they find out their kids have broken hearts, and it's easy to feel overwhelmed. So turning the terminology into something friendly and common or attainable, I guess you would say, makes it a little bit less scary.
0: Yeah, and that's the hope. The hope is that we can support families in sometimes the worst times of their life. And we have fortunately really great outcomes. But even sometimes when we don't have outcomes that we desire, the ability to be there for a family and walk with them through that process is so fulfilling. And that's really why I go to the office every day and go into the hospital and see patients is to help families navigate this really complex system.
1: I love that. You've been openly gay and. I imagine you've had all kinds of obstacles that you've had to face in becoming a doctor. Can you talk to us about some of those obstacles that you've had to face?
0: Certainly. I came out of the closet when I was 20 years old, and this was a really difficult time for me. I knew I wanted to be a doctor. And when I first started telling people that I was gay, even some family members of mine said, your dreams of being a doctor are probably over. I'm a little hard-headed, so I didn't (laughs) really let that deter me. And I chased my dream to become a doctor. Fortunately, I went to Tulane, which is a very accepting place. And New Orleans is a place where it's a kind of city where you live and let live. Mm-hmm. And I had a wonderful experience here. And a lot of the fears that I had, my family had with me, not only coming as someone from the North, but also a gay person from the North moving to the South were really not a problem when I got here. Now, I will say that I have patients who come from all over and I often do worry about what they will think of me as having their child be treated by a gay doctor, as I know that there is a population of this country that unfortunately does not support this. But I also hope that they can see that by the care that I provide for their children, it doesn't matter who I love. And I am still, hopefully to them, a wonderful doctor that is going to care for their child like I would my own.
1: It just makes me sad to think that some people might feel you can't be a doctor because of your sexual preference. That has nothing to do with the care that you provide to other people.
0: Well, and I think one of the reasons why I am openly gay at work and out in public is because I want to change minds and I want people to see that maybe their thoughts of what a gay person does or how a gay person thinks. It's not really reality. We're just people. And we do all the same things that other people do. And hopefully we do it as passionately as anyone else.
1: Yeah, I like that. It's interesting that you said also being from the North. I was raised in New Jersey. And when I was 13 years old, I moved to Texas. And it was a culture shock for me. There's a very big difference in the way people are treated up north versus the way they treat one another down south. Where were you before you moved to New Orleans?
0: So I grew up for the first 21 years of my life in Westchester, New York, which is a suburb of New York City. And I really had not spent much time in the south except for vacations to Florida or things like that. The first time I had been to Louisiana was actually my medical school interview. And I had such a feeling of warmth from the city that when I left the interview, I felt like this was the place that I needed to be. Most of my family still lives in the north and would love for me to live closer, but we're really comfortable here.
1: Oh, I love it in the south. I just love it here. So I'm glad to hear that. You do not speak with a New York accent whatsoever.
0: No, I don't. I've came that down over the years.
1: Oh. (laughs) So you did have a northern accent when you first moved here.
0: A little bit, and I probably spoke a lot faster than I do now.
1: I know, right? I didn't realize how fast I talked until my cousins said to me, Anna, you have to slow down. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's definitely something that we Northerners tend to do is speak a little bit faster than what our Southern cousins do. Let's talk about you practicing as a pediatric cardiologist. How do you feel the healthcare climate has changed, especially regarding inclusion of members of the LGBTQ plus community?
0: I have been practicing now for a number of years, and even in the last five years, I've seen considerable changes, the organizational level of how they broke outreach to people in the LGBT community. We now have a transgender toolkit as part of our electronic medical record, which asks preferred pronouns, asks for preferred name, gender identity. And those were things that really were unheard of just Five years ago in the medical field so it's really wonderful to see and I think some people are still getting used to that idea that people feel that they fall under different pronouns and I think the more that we normalize it the more we can make it more comfortable for everyone
1: I think that's true as well I know that you and I haven't known each other very long, and you probably haven't listened to this episode, but I just recently interviewed my heart warrior, and she was born a male, and she is now a transgender daughter. And I'm still getting used to that. She was 27 when she came out, and she's just now 28 years old. So Most of her life, I've been calling her Alex, and it's only been going on a year now that I've called her Hope. And I have to confess to you, I had a lot of concerns for her heart with her considering becoming a woman. Do you have a lot of patients that you're working with now that are also going through this kind of transition?
0: I do have a couple of patients. I actually have one patient who drives from as far away as Florida to come see me. Yeah. And I hope that shows that they feel comfortable with me. And I think that's important with any patient provider relationship, that they really feel comfortable with the person who's taking care of them, is that we know that leads to the best health outcomes.
2: please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. That's Anna at HeartToHeartWithAnna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna.
1: Jake, let's start by talking about the incidents of LGBTQ in the CHD community because my child was not the first one that I encountered. I actually have a friend who also has a child who is transgender. And I know that there are several people that I'm friends with whose children are also gay, but I've never seen a study that's been done on this. Do we have any idea what the incidence is in the CHD community?
0: Honestly, we don't. And that's a little bit surprising as congenital heart disease is the number one congenital defect. We also know that the LGBTQ community has worse health outcomes, usually because of restricted access to health care, whether it's that they live in a region where there's not good health care, or more commonly, they haven't found a provider that they're comfortable with. So we know as they grow older, they are going to miss some of the important checkups that would potentially prevent some of the problems. And because of this, have a higher incidence of things like heart attacks and strokes.
1: That's really scary. I was concerned because when Hope told me that she did want to go through the transition and that would include taking estrogen, I know that hormones can affect the electrical system of the heart. Am I right?
0: Yeah, certainly different hormones play on the way that cells in our body talk to each other. But we also have to remember that people who are born as females, they have estrogen endogenously, just like people who are born as males have more testosterone. So I don't really consider it a significant health risk. Of course, before going through any type of treatment, it's always best to consult your cardiologist and have a risk assessment because there are some considerations. For example, estrogen tends to have a higher rate of clot formation, especially when we talk about the birth control types of estrogen. So while there's not a whole lot of guidance out there in the literature, it is important to talk to the people who know you best, which are usually your doctors that you've had a long-time relationship with.
1: I feel really fortunate that Hope has a really good doctor that she's working with, and the doctor was very open with her and said, you're my first patient to go through this transition. Would it be okay with you if we make a case study out of this? And she was very open to that because she wants to help future transgender women not have to have as many questions as we do. I'm sure you can imagine my husband and I, and she as well, have so many questions. So she is offering to help this one physician out to do a case study with her. Have you seen many case studies that have been done on patients who are transgender in the CHD community?
0: I haven't, but I'm very excited to hear that your daughter is willing to put herself out there and help expand the knowledge in the medical community. And that's how we build information. And the first thing that we look to as physicians when we don't understand something is what does the research show? And while we may not have large controlled studies on these types of things, I think any type of literature that helps explain the experience and some of the considerations that the team went through during this process is going to help everybody.
1: I think so too. I'm really proud of her that she's doing this. When she was a teenager, she took part in a couple of studies that were done with Boston Children's Hospital regarding Fontaners and neurological considerations. So this isn't the first time that she's worked with somebody who wanted to gain some more information. But this is something that's totally different. And so far, I'm very pleased because she had fallen out of care. It's interesting that you opened the show by saying that the LGBTQ community can be more at risk. She didn't fall out of care because of that. She fell out of care because she went through what so many teenagers and young adults go through, where they have a phase where they just want to be normal. And they don't want to have to see their cardiologist every six months or every year. And it took her about five years. But when she decided she wanted to go through this transition, she knew that the only healthy way she could do it was by getting back in care. So that has been a huge blessing to me because I've been doing this podcast for nine years and I've been begging her <laughs> to get back in care and try not to nag her too much, but trying to just bring about an awareness of some of these issues that are so important and why you shouldn't fall out of care. But so far, she's been taking estrogen and she seems to be doing very well. She hasn't had any negative reactions to it. What other kinds of considerations do you think need to be made for people who are going through some kind of transition?
0: I think the most important thing is for it to be documented what organs they have, because you may have a male to female transition, but the male who transitioned still has a prostate, and and so they still need prostate checks when they get older, although it, it can bring up certainly some anxious feelings as they are experiencing like they're moving backwards and just in the opposite direction. Females who have transitioned to males have to think about things like screening for breast cancers and depending on their stage of transition, things like cervical cancers and other things that you may not think about if you just look at a person.
1: Yeah, I hadn't really given that much thought. So that's interesting that you say that. And we're so blessed right now, aren't we, that so many of our heart warriors are growing up to be 30, 40, 50, and starting to have some of those considerations. Just 20 or 30 years ago, so many of our kids didn't make it to their later decades.
0: Yeah, it's really wonderful to see. And one of the things that I wanted to touch on that you touched on before was patients who fall out of care. And one of the things that I think about, especially for my really complex patients, who have had a lot of hospitalizations, might transplant patients, kids with complex congenital heart disease, or even patients who have had one procedure or one surgery. Anytime they go and see a doctor, they may experience in their mind some of those difficult times, some of the pain that they had, that time that maybe they came to see their cardiologist for a checkup and they ended up admitted to the hospital for a month. So I try to remember that when patients don't show up and reach out to them to find out what is the reason for it so we can help get them past that.
1: Oh, that's so good that you're aware of that because I do think so many of our heart warriors are dealing with post-traumatic stress and When they're very little, they may not even have the vocabulary to understand or be able to express the anxiety or the stress that they're feeling, but they just know when they go to that building or when they go in a room and they smell a particular smell that it can trigger it.
0: Yeah, certainly. I never pay attention to the vital signs that are done right as a patient walks into the building. I always repeat them myself if they're abnormal because patients are often scared and it's even that more important for the lgbtq community to know that they're going to go to an office where they don't have to fear about being accepted or being Mm -hmm. treated differently because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity
1: yeah that's important and that you will be respectful of them and use the right pronouns i know for my daughter It's been a challenge for her. So she wore a pin that said she, her, she wears it to work. And she hopes that will help people because most of the people who have known her have known her with the male pronouns. So she knows that they may make mistakes and she hopes that the pin will help to remind them what she prefers to go by.
0: That's wonderful. One of the things that I've done is in my email signature, for example, it has mm-hmm. my preferred pronouns, which are the, the expected pronouns as one would expect. But the more we normalize, it doesn't make it so hard for people that have different pronouns for them to put themselves out there and not be afraid to tell people the pronouns that they prefer. And I have a patient who has a difficult time understanding why people need different pronouns. And the way that I think about it is you may not understand why someone else needs different pronouns and you may not even agree with it, but in our heart as humans, really, we should just be respectful of anybody. So this choice does not affect you. And if it makes someone else happier, improves their mental health, we should be compassionate about that.
1: I agree 100%. So I hate to ask this question because my kid could be in this position someday. She's a Fontaner, and Mm -hmm. there's a possibility that someday she may need a heart transplant. Can you tell me if there is any bias against people who are in the LGBTQ community when it comes to transplant?
0: I think we all have some implicit bias. Whether it is about the LGBTQ community. I just did a study with the Pediatric Heart Transplant Society about innate biases towards different races and really looking at ourselves as a group to understand our biases so that we can actively work towards it. Now, I would be incredibly upset as someone who's a director of a heart transplant program to think that the ability for someone to get listed for a heart transplant. Is at all relevant to their sexual orientation or their gender identity? And really the part of the workup for a heart transplant is to make sure that the healthcare team, the social support is all there to make sure that this is successful for that patient. So we don't have numbers on this, but I would be really incredibly devastated if I were to hear that someone was denied an organ or being on the wait list because of gender identity or sexual orientation. And this is a time that I'm so passionate about this topic that anyone could reach out to me and discuss what had happened. Anna Jaworski has ...several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father,
2: and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that
0: you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more.
2: Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more.
1: I'm glad we're talking about it, because it's in talking about it, like you were saying before, that's how you normalize it, and that's how you can let people recognize that there might be a problem. And if there is a problem, to curb it as quickly as possible.
0: Yeah, and like I said before, I have patients who come from probably a four-state radius to see me, and I know that some people, just by the numbers, are going to be people who don't agree with gay marriage, they don't agree with homosexuality, but my hope is by having contact with me and providing the best possible care for them and their family, that it will become real to them. And that this isn't something that just affects random people who you'll never meet, but it even affects the physician taking care of their children.
1: Are you really that rare, Jake, that people have to travel a four-state radius just to find somebody who's like them?
0: I am super sub-specialized. Yeah,
1: yeah, when I read your bio and all the different things (laughs) that you have specialized in, that makes you rare.
0: Yeah, so from that standpoint, we are the only pediatric heart transplant program in Louisiana. Mississippi and Arkansas's programs have been active and inactive over the years. I'm also The only one in Louisiana and maybe some surrounding states that's fellowship trained in treating pulmonary hypertension or high blood pressure in the lungs. I do have patients that really travel from long distances to come and see me.
1: So it's more because of your specialization and not because you're a gay doctor.
0: Correct. Although the patient that I do have in Florida, this person goes by Bay, they choose to come see me from Florida because they felt like I was the first doctor who really supported them and really took to heart the issues that they were having and was there for the journey, not just the one or two visits that I see them for.
1: Wow. That's such a huge compliment to you.
0: Yeah, I have a really hard, a very stressful job. And it's moments like those that make me excited to go to work in the morning. And while my job is very stressful, I work long hours, I work nights, weekends. I also think I have the best job in the world. There's nothing else that I could imagine doing that would be so fulfilling than what I do.
1: I love that. That's amazing. I wish everybody felt that way about the job they have.
0: Yeah, wouldn't that be wonderful?
1: It would be wonderful.
0: Imagine how much productivity the world would have if everyone found something that they just love to do.
1: I think it would be great. That's why I do what I do. I don't get a paycheck for what I do. (laughs) (laughs) I do this because I feel this is something God wanted me to do. I really believe God gave me hope and God gave me the ability because my husband pays all the bills and he pays some of my bills for the podcast too. Uh (laughs) So let me do something that I feel is very rewarding. And we have a chance to help people all over the world with what we do. And I never would have guessed 30 years ago that I would have a chance to talk to people in Africa and Pakistan and all over the world and that we would have something like this in common. It's really important what we're doing.
0: I'd love to ask you a question if you have a moment, because you did mention God and religion, and sometimes that doesn't always intersect well with the LGBTQ community. So how do you navigate that?
1: I can't believe that a loving father wouldn't love all children, no matter Uh what gender they call themselves by or what their sexual preference is so i believe that the god that i believe in loves everybody and i am a christian and jesus's only commandment to us was for us to love one another he didn't add any exceptions in there so Uh, i don't know why humans would add any exceptions if god doesn't add any exceptions why should we
0: yeah, that's my feeling. I'm Jewish, so I was a gay Jew from the north moving to the south. <laughs> to add a little you bit. You made more it compl- really
1: complicated for yourself, yeah, seriously.
0: <laughs> but yeah, that's my feeling: is that really love thy neighbor, and we should love all humans is really the message that should be being spread out there.
1: If we all did that, Drake.
0: Oh my! Gosh. The world
1: would be so much more harmonious, wouldn't it's
0: it? Tr- it sure would.
1: It shouldn't matter what religion you are. It shouldn't matter what color your skin is or what your sexual preference is or what pronouns you prefer to use. The fact is that we're all human beings and we all have a heart. We all have brains. We should be able to use the gifts that we were given to be kind to everybody and look past any of the differences we have. The differences that we have actually make us more interesting to one another, I think. I certainly don't want there to be a hundred Annas out there. One is quite enough, I'm sure.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Chulay had a wonderful medical school chaplain, Father Don. He was an Episcopal priest, and he was kind of a rock for me during my time during medical school. And I remember him giving a lecture on ethics. And the one line that I have always remembered is, nothing human is foreign to me. Just suggested that we're all bound together by our common humanity. And we have so much more in common than our differences. And we should be celebrating our differences and realizing how much we actually have in
1: common. I love that. That's perfect. Exactly. And here we are, during heart month, I would like to think that all of us would use our hearts to help one another and to be kind to one another and look past the differences and celebrate those differences, like you said, and just embrace our humanity. That's what will make us all happier. And mental health is a big topic right now. It seems to be a big issue in so many different communities, even in the heart community. And I think that one of the ways we can improve our mental health is just by being kind to one another.
0: Absolutely. For my kids, I actually told them two nights ago, there are three things I want for them. I want them to be happy. I want them to be healthy. And I want them to be kind. Everything else is a tier below. It's not as important. But if we can accomplish those three things, then I think I've done my job as a parent.
1: I love it. Well, let's talk about barriers in this segment because I think the first step in breaking barriers for any minority group is to actually get people to talk about those topics and stop making things taboo. So what advice do you have for teenagers or parents of teenagers who are addressing the LGBTQ topic for the very first time?
0: That's a great question. And I think back to when I came out And I had very few people that I knew could mentor me through that process. Fortunately, that was now 17 years ago and times have changed. And I think it's important for people to find someone out there who can mentor them, who can help give them guidance, both parents and children. And there are sites out there that are helpful, such as the Trevor project. That's a great project that basically was a group of stories that was put together into a book called It Gets Better. And it was from people like me and other people telling their stories about their journey through coming out and to where they are now. And it helps teenagers to see that it does get better. And unfortunately, high school's can be a wonderful place, but they can also be a really difficult place for teenagers. So those teenagers who are struggling that don't always have the most supportive system, I always remind them that this is just a period of time in their life. And the good thing about high school, if it's not working well for you, is that you don't stay in high school for the rest of your life. So I think looking forward to the future, getting involved in the community. One of the ways that we interact with our community is through sports. And many cities have LGBTQ plus sports leagues for older young adults, which is where actually we've met a lot of our friends playing sports and connecting with them. And it's really not about the sport. It's not about your ability. It's about getting together with people in a healthy manner, who are like you and interacting and feeling comfortable.
1: I'm a Toastmaster, which I told you before we started the program. And we even have an LBGTQ Toastmasters group in Austin, Texas. And I'm glad to see that they have that opportunity where they can share stories with one another and they know that everybody who's listening to them gets it, and is supportive of them. I think we yeah. need more opportunities like that for the LBGTQ community to find extracurricular activities where they can be with like-minded people.
0: Yes, it's very important. I get very saddened when I see school districts cutting programs like Gay-Straight Alliances or similar programs because it sends a message to kids who already have a higher risk of struggles with mental health, that the group that they've been relying on is not important to the people who run the school or are not supported by them. And I think that really does a lot of harm for these kids. Fortunately, there are community groups out there that young adults and people of the LGBTQ community can turn to for community events as well.
1: That is very helpful. What advice do you have for members of the LGBTQ and CHD community when it comes to putting together their own unique healthcare team?
0: So while it can be really difficult to put yourself out there, especially if you're newer to the process of coming out, which to me is a continuous process, because it's not just like one day you say, I want to transition to be a woman, or one day you say, I'm gay, and that's the end of it. Really, every person you meet, you have to navigate. Is this a safe space? Am I going to be welcome here? And hopefully, with the medical community, you don't have to worry about that. But I also don't live in a bubble, and I do realize that there are probably physicians out there that may not agree with people of the LGBTQ community and their needs. So I think it's important to be upfront in the beginning and discuss things like sexual orientation and gender identity with your provider. You can only have good outcomes if you have good teamwork. And on a team, it's not the physician. It's not the patient. It's not the mom or the dad or the two moms or two dads. It's everybody who makes the team and everybody is just as important. So if you get to seeing a provider that you feel like really is not supporting you and your goals, find someone who does. And I know Oshner helped, for example, the hospital system that I work for puts together a list of LGBTQ friendly providers.
1: Is that common for hospitals to do that?
0: You know, I, I'm not sure. And I kind of have mixed feelings about it, to be honest, because okay. I think that all providers should be inclusive.
1: <laughs> I agree.
0: But it does take away that fear that they're going to make an appointment with a provider who is not going to be supportive. So I think sure. in that respect, it is helpful. I always stress to my patients and families that healthcare is a team sport. And Everybody on the yeah. team needs to be on the same page. And if you feel like your team is not listening to you or understanding who you are or where do you want to go in life, fortunately, there are alternatives.
1: I think that especially 28 years ago, when I was first entering the CHD community, there were so few providers anyway, that most of us didn't really feel that we had an option. You were given a certain cardiologist for your child, and that was pretty much it, unless they left and went to a different hospital. But now things are very different, and you can shop around. You can interview several doctors until you find one that you feel comfortable with.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Now I live in a city, so it's a lot easier for people to do that than people who live in more rural areas. But with my own patients, if I feel like maybe we're just not clicking, I have no problem with them searching for another provider. I'll even help them search for another provider because to me, the most important thing is that they get the healthcare and support that they need. And While I like to think that I mesh with every patient, there may be some patients where I just don't have the style that is most appropriate for them. And I support them in trying to find someone who does.
1: I like that you said that because it's not that you are not a great doctor. We know that you're a great doctor or that some other doctor is not also a great doctor, but there are different styles that are used to communicate with parents. I know Over the years, I've had friends who have told me, Anna, I just really don't want to know. I don't want to know exactly what this entails, or I don't want to know about some of what complications are. I'm just barely hanging on. I can just barely go day to day. And there are people like me. I want to know everything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And different doctors would get along with each of those parents differently. So I don't think there is a problem with Interviewing a couple of different doctors and finding out who you mesh with because you would like to think that everybody is going to give you the best care they possibly can, but their communication style may not work as well with you as somebody else's would. And likewise, the patient with the doctor.
0: And often more importantly, how the doctor communicates with the child, right? Because there are some parents. Feel very strongly that they don't want their child to have undue stress and anxiety and learn about procedures ahead of time. And there are other parents who are like, we want our child to be involved as age appropriately as possible, which is more of the approach that I support. But I'm also sympathetic to not causing undue anxiety. So figuring out that balance with the family so that I'm not lying to a patient. I always tell my family that I will not lie to you or your child, but there are times where it may be appropriate that maybe I don't disclose some information to a child on a particular day because they're having a tough time. And I think those are the nuances of medicine. That relationship with your provider becomes so important so you can have those conversations ahead of time in order to best take care of the child and the family.
1: That is really important. And especially as our kids transition from being little kids into being young adults, there are questions and there are topics that come up that sometimes it's best for the parent not to be in the room with the child so that the child can ask the cardiologist something that they may not want mom and dad to hear about.
0: Yes, I, and I think that is something that oftentimes as providers, I think we could do better at. I, with my transplant population, I see them so often that there are often opportunities for me to talk to the child without the parents. And I also always set the ground rules. I tell the child that the rules are that. I will not discuss anything you don't want me to discuss with your mom or dad or caretaker unless I feel like it is going to be something that is harm to you or to somebody else. And I tell the parents the same thing. Many times after I talk to a child privately, the mom comes in and asks, what did you talk about? And there are times where I do think it's important for the child and I to come up with a plan of how to discuss something with a parent, but there's also a time that this is a patient provider confidentiality that I respect and I want kids to feel comfortable talking to me about anything because that's the only way I'm going to be able to deliver them the best health care.
1: Yeah, I think as a parent, that's really hard to hear sometimes, especially if we have concerns about our children's mental health and where they Mm -hmm. may be at that point in time. But I promise you, friends, I am now the mother of two adult children. If you've done a good job raising your children and you've shown them how much you love them and how much you trust them, even if they make decisions that don't necessarily go along with what you would choose yourself or even what you would choose for your child, they're going to be okay. Because they have that great foundation and we have to allow our children to make mistakes and we have to allow our children to live their own lives without enforcing our beliefs on them. I've seen some parents who are so overpowering when it comes to their children that they're not allowing their children to be who God intended them to be. And we have to give them that space to discover who they are themselves without us constantly interjecting our own beliefs on them in the end it's all going to be fine we just have to trust them
0: yeah i I agree with everything that you just said and being a parent is the hardest job in the world it is just feeding my children is hard
1: yep been there (laughs) Yeah. And
0: then you throw on top of it, medical issues and people of the LGBTQ community and navigating those issues. Sometimes it just feels so overwhelming, but I think it's important to look at the big picture, take one step at a time and trust that child that you have nurtured for years to have heard at least some of the things that you've taught them over the years and just start letting them make decisions that are authentic to them.
1: Yes, that is one of the things as a parent I wanted to instill in my children was that I wanted them to be true to themselves because you can't be true to anyone else if you can't be true to yourself. I couldn't have said it better. Well, before we go, and I can't believe our time is up already because it's gone way too fast, but I do have one more question. And that is that I have interviewed so many heart patients who have then decided to work in the medical field, which I think is a huge pat on the back to all of you who work in the medical field with these patients. What advice do you have for somebody who is a young LGBTQ adult who might be interested in considering a career in healthcare?
0: Number one, don't get discouraged. There are a lot of barriers that are sometimes placed on whether you want to go to medical school or be a physician assistant or occupational therapist or anything in healthcare that it may not work out the first time, but I do truly believe that anybody who's passionate enough To want to pursue a career in healthcare can. It may not be the track that they thought they would get there the path that they thought they would get there, but if you love something enough, you're going to find your way there. The other important thing is to look for role models and look Mm -hmm. for people who are similar to you, that you can ask questions, that you can turn to when you're having a bad day or feel discouraged. And I think the last thing is, I don't want to say don't listen to people who have given you negative advice or tell you that you're not going to make it, but really believe in yourself because it doesn't matter what else anybody thinks. Like I said, I was told that I couldn't be a doctor when I came out. And here I am as the medical director of of a pediatric heart transplant program and i have a wonderful life a wonderful family colleagues who wholeheartedly support me but i couldn't have done it if i had listened to people who were negative or people who didn't believe that i had what it took to become a doctor
1: i love that I think what you said is so important. We have to believe in ourselves. We have to believe in our children that they can do it. And you know what? Sometimes our kids are going to have problems maybe because of their heart condition. It may be, well, take them longer to get their medical degree because they've had to have a valve replacement or they've had to have some kind of Rehab for having some kind of procedure, things like that happen in our community. Unfortunately, congenital heart defects are a lifelong condition. We parents would love to think that they could get one surgery or two or three, and then they're done. And so many times, friends and relatives will say, "Oh, now that your child has had two or three or four surgeries, you're done." And there are so many times we want to say yes, but but those of us who are educated know you can't say yes to that. It's a lifelong condition. And that means that you could go, like my kid went 16 years without needing a procedure and then had to have a Fontan revision. It was a big, hairy deal. And my kid's doing great now. It's been 11 years, but I think we all know that something could happen in the future. She has a Fontan heart. We yeah. know that the liver is compromised. That's just a matter of fact. But If we can stay on top of things, hopefully she'll be fine, and hopefully all of our kids will be fine and still be able to find a way to make a meaningful dream come true. I know for those of you who are active on Facebook, you may have seen Lori Hill just posted. She came on my show a couple of years ago, and it was her dream to be a doctor, just like it was Jake's dream to be a doctor, but she had a very complicated heart condition, and... Lacked the stamina to go to medical school and decided that she was going to become a physical therapist until she got into that program and realized she didn't have the stamina to do that either. Well, Lori just recently received a heart transplant and she just posted on Facebook just this week that she has been accepted into a medical program with Baylor. And I'm so excited for her because, yes, she's been through a lot more than probably most medical residents have to go through, but she is going to be an excellent doctor and I'm just so excited for her that she's going to have this opportunity thanks to a donor heart
0: that That is incredible, and I actually think that that kids who have become adults who have gone through heart surgeries procedures actually make the best providers because They're sympathetic to the things that those of us who have not gone through don't think about. And those are the people that really cue me into things that I don't always think about. We actually have one of our heart transplant recipients who was transplanted as a baby, who is now 19 or 20 years old and in medical school.
1: Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yes.
0: With the same heart that he got transplanted as a baby and she's doing great. So... By no means having a congenital heart defect or having a heart transplant means that your dreams have to change. Like I said, it may not always be the path that you intended, but there's a way to get involved and to do the things that you're passionate about.
1: I love it. Thank you so much for coming on the program today, Dr. Clymahan. It's been So rewarding to talk to you and inspiring to listen to you.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And what you do is so important for the community out there who oftentimes feel isolated. They're the only ones going through something. So I think having these types of conversations is so important.
1: Thanks. I think so, too. I wish... A program like this would have been available when my kid was little because you're right. You do feel so isolated and you wonder if you're the only one who is experiencing certain things. And by talking about it, we realize we're not alone. So that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found the program helpful. If you have any questions about the show, please feel free to send them to me on the H.U.G. website. That's org. I'll put a link in the show notes so that you don't have to worry about writing that down. And also, remember, my friends, you are not alone.
2: Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern time.